Hey, it's such a joy to be with you today and I hope it's not too late to wish you a happy new year. I wonder if you've been tempted recently to take something you weren't supposed to. Recently, Abel and I went on a family trip to Penang and if you've ever been to Batafringi, you know it's a great place to have a holiday. Firstly, it's not too far from the city so you can still drive into Georgetown and have the best chakwe tao you can get in Malaysia. But you're also right next to the beach so if your toddler happens to wake up at 6am and needs somewhere to play, you have easy access to the sand and the sea. Basically, you have the best of both worlds. So we were really looking forward to this holiday in Penang spending quality time together as a family. Now there was just one little problem. I had no idea the hotel we were staying at had monkeys. And not just one or two, but everywhere. I mean, they were climbing up the walls, they came into our balcony, I think we've got a picture. But if you think these are bad, none of these moments compared to one morning when we were at breakfast. I put our three-year-old son, Levi, down in the high chair, and then I set my pal on the table. And within seconds, out of the corner of my eye, there I saw it, a monkey inching towards Levi. And everything inside of me went into fight mode. I needed to be protective. So I quickly stepped towards Levi and immediately protected my pal. Here's what happened. Oh, no, no, no. I am ashamed to admit it, but in that moment of wanting to protect Levi from the monkey, I reached out and grabbed instead for the pal. This monkey was eyeing something it wanted to take. And in today's passage, we'll read about a couple who ate something they weren't supposed to eat. It's from the book of Genesis, the very first book in the Bible. And a side note, if you started doing the Bible one year this past week, you'd have covered this passage. And if you're looking to read the Bible this year, it's not too late to start on BIOY. I can't recommend it highly enough. So let's read together from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. Verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. This is the story of the fall of Adam and Eve. 
Now, whether you've grown up in the church or it's your first time watching here online, it's likely you have heard the story of Adam and Eve and the Garden of Eden. Or even if you haven't heard of it, you may have seen one of the 18 million paintings of Adam and Eve. Or you might have noticed in Harry Potter, the bad guy is Voldemort's steak. Or in Snow White, she fell asleep because she ate the forbidden fruit. Now, this story has framed all sorts of things over thousands of years, from fairy tales to fashion to food preferences to some might argue some of the weightier things like gender and the purpose for which we were created. And while there is so much to say and unpack in this passage, I want to zoom in today on the fall, the events surrounding it, and what this passage says about our thought lives. And so I've titled my sermon, A Roadmap for Your Thought Life. Pastor Craig Groeschel, he says, Our life is always moving in the direction of our strongest thoughts. The author and pastor Norman Vincent Peale, he said, Change your thoughts and you can change the world. And according to Master Shifu in the cinematic masterpiece Kung Fu Panda, before the battle of the fists comes the battle of the mind. We know the importance of keeping a healthy thought life. So why does it feel like hardwired into us are insecurities, worries, anxiety, doubt? And I wonder if you could take a guess, what do you think would be the percentage of positive thoughts that the average person has? 70%? 50%? 20%? Well, according to a study that was published by the American National Science Foundation, of the thousands of thoughts that the average person has each day, only 20% are positive. And that means that 80% are negative. Not only that, of the 80% negative thoughts, 95% were exactly the same repetitive thoughts as the day before. In other words, humans are hardwired for negative thinking. And that's what we see in the passage. God had created a world that was good. God created humankind and called them very good. But then Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit from the forbidden tree. And now we see in this good world, enter that which was not good, blame and shame. And so my first point, to renovate the roadmap of our thought lives, we need to confront our blame and shame instincts. When I think of someone blaming someone for something, I think of this video of this dog outsmarting a cat. Let's take a look. Nothing makes a sandwich like a Pepsi. It's the cola. In verses 11 to 13, when God asked Adam whether he'd eaten from the tree that God commanded him not to eat from, Adam pointed his finger towards Eve and he said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And then when God asked Eve what had happened, Eve said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. And so here we see a chain of blame right at the very start of humanity. Adam blamed Eve and Eve blamed the serpent. But not only that, Adam blamed God as well. He said, God, you put the woman here with me. And when I read this, I thought, all right, Adam, that's kind of rude. But then I realized I do the same as well. When miscommunications happen, I tend to ask, how come they cannot understand? When the truth is, I've just communicated poorly. When driving, I tend to blame the uncle in front of me. Uncle, why you drive so slow? But the truth is, I've just been driving terribly. 
When we blame, we look around at our circumstances, our friends, our family, our loved ones. We look up and ask, God, why have you done this to me? We look to the past and live with the baggage of bitterness, unforgiveness, and hurt. Why do we blame others? Some say it's an evolutionary trait because our ancestors, who were more attuned to threats and danger from wild animals, they were the ones more likely to survive and therefore pass on their genes. But in this passage, the sequence of events is clear. God said simply not to eat from the tree, but they disobeyed. But what if you found yourself in a situation much more complex than this? A disagreement with a colleague where both of you feel you are right. A long-standing conflict in your family. A past mistake you're finding it hard to forgive someone for. Now, you're all much more humble than me, and so I won't be surprised if most of the time the blame rightfully belongs to others. But I think the reason we tend to blame others is that our minds need an explanation. You know, everything wrong that's happened needs a source. And if we're not ready to own some part of it, it's very natural to say it wasn't me and assign blame to someone else. In some ways, it feeds our need for justice. We get to control the narrative. My loving and very honest husband, Abel, he, says some, he sometimes says to me that I'm most concerned about justice when this justice is for myself. And I wonder what would have happened if Adam and Eve simply took responsibility for their actions. You know, Scripture reminds us that you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment also do the same things. Romans chapter 2, verse 1 we also do the same things. The impulse to blame has been hardwired into every one of us right from the fall. But what if you're sitting here and you're thinking, actually, I don't really struggle with blaming others. My quota for blame is all reserved for me. And if that's you, I wonder if you relate to the verses in the passage that come right before the finger pointing in verses 11 to 13. Let's go a few verses and read from verses 7 to 10. Immediately after Adam and Eve ate the fruit, it says in verse 7, Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Have you ever had to hide yourself out of a sense of shame? I remember when I was seven years old, I used to do quite well in school. You know, it doesn't matter that it was a small school in a small town and I was just in standard one. I was quite proud that I was always in the top three in class. It made me feel very smart. Until one day, I dropped to number four. I know what you're thinking. I was young and innocent. I hadn't seen nothing yet. But, you know, I remember at the ripe old age of seven years old, I felt so full of shame that I hid my report card from my parents. I hid from them when I got home. And when they came home, they called to me just as God called Adam and Eve. In verse 9, it says, But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? The very first question God asked Adam and Eve right after the fall, Where are you? How do you think he asked it? With anger? Confusion? Panic, like the way I called for Levi at Jaya Grocer the other day, the two seconds I thought I'd lost him. Where are you, Levi? Or with sadness or regret. They hid because they were afraid of an angry God who would punish them. But what did God do instead? 
Verse 21 tells us, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and He clothed them. You see, Adam and Eve, they pieced flimsy fig leaves together to make a covering for their shame. But God graced them with handmade garments and clothed them despite their sin. You know, the thing about shame and blame is that the two are often intermingled. You know, clinical psychologists have recently started studying the connection between shame and blame. And what they found is, at the root of blaming others is essentially a sense of shame. So when we put the blame on others, we get to shift our shame outside ourselves and put a pause on our pain. But the story of the Christian faith is the opposite. You know, this passage tells us when we are stuck in our shame, God comes searching for us. He doesn't shame us or blame us. Instead, He gives us the authority to do the opposite. And this leads me to my second point. To renovate the roadmap of our thought lives, God calls us to name our reality. You know, I find it so interesting that all through Genesis 1 and 2, we see the creation account, how God created light and the sky, the seas and the wild beasts, and He spoke each one into existence. But in chapter 2, after God had created the Garden of Eden and He tasked Adam to take care of it, it says in verse 19, Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. Genesis 2, 19. Now let's just pause there a little bit. God, the creator of heaven and earth and all living things, He brought the animals to Adam to see what he would name them. It's kind of like when my dad took me out to a watch shop to buy my mum a watch for her birthday. I was just about nine years old. I knew nothing about watches. I still don't. And he asked me which I thought my mum would like. And I chose one. And the next day, we got to give that very same watch to my mum for her birthday. And as I read this, I thought, God cared what Adam thought. It didn't matter if Adam gave a ridiculous name like Potteroo or Patamelon or Western Gobbleguts, all of which are actual names of actual Australian animals, by the way. Maybe Adam was Australian, I don't know. But what we see here is whatever Adam spoke eventually stuck. And it's made me wonder if our blame and shame reactions come from thoughts and feelings we haven't yet named. Thoughts that form the 80% that we've replayed and internalized so much that we've come to believe them. But the very moment you define it, the very moment you articulate it, the very moment you release it to the Lord, the very moment you write it down, it begins to lose its power. Daniel Siegel, a clinical psychologist, he says that when we accurately label an emotion or an emotional trigger, we get to firstly de-escalate our emotions, but secondly, we get to bridge our feelings and our thoughts. And so rather than simply react, we get to reflect. He says to name it is to tame it. You see, when God called for Adam and Eve in the garden, I don't think He called them because He didn't know where they were. He was giving them an opportunity to name their reality. He was saying, it doesn't matter what you've done. I want you close to me. Before you choose to believe, choose to belong with me. I can see you managing your shame, but one day I will rescue you with salvation. And so naming our reality can look like this. I'm embarrassed to show my report card because I thought I was smart, but this tells me I'm not. 
I feel hopeless I would ever see breakthrough in this relationship. I feel fearful I'll be lonely for the rest of my life. I'm worried my child will struggle in life like me. I feel inadequate when my co-workers seem to disrespect me. I'm struggling to forgive this person for what they have done to me. Your thoughts and feelings matter to God. And so it's not a surprise that the two shortest verses in the Bible are about our emotions. Jesus wept, John 11.35, and rejoice always, 1 Thessalonians 5.16. The same Bible that says Jesus wept also calls us to rejoice always. And right now in your heart, you may be beginning to name your reality. You may want to offer it to the Lord. The encouragement for you is that God knows it even before you've chosen to say it, even before you've written it down. And as you name it, Jesus wept. I am angry. This person has hurt me. I feel far from God. I feel anxious for my future. You can choose the truth. Rejoice always. Yet will I trust God. Yet I choose to forgive. Yet I choose to love. You see, the serpent attacked by sowing doubt, our weapon in response is to speak the truth. And this brings me to my third and final point. To renovate the roadmap of our thought lives, we need to name our reality. And finally, we get to claim our identity. You see, while it's good to name our struggles, our worries and our doubts, it's not enough to stop there because God's original intention for Adam and Eve was to be fruitful, to multiply, to have authority over every living creature on the earth. They were made in His image. Genesis 1, 27 to 28 says, So God created mankind in His own image. God blessed them. He said to them, Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And yet, despite all the authority He empowered them with, He gave them one clear boundary, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when they eat, it, eat from it, they will certainly die, Genesis 2.17. But when the serpent tempted Eve, He said, you will not certainly die, but instead you will be like God. The serpent knows that an inroad into our thought lives is to make us doubt God to believe that we can control our lives, that we can trust our desires and what the world and Disney tells us, that we can become whoever and whatever we want, that we can follow our heart. In other words, that we will be like God. But Jesus, though He was in very nature God, He made Himself nothing, took on the nature as a servant and became obedient to death on the cross. You see, Scripture tells us He was tempted in every possible way and therefore is able to empathize with our weaknesses, Hebrews 4.15. He knows what it feels like to grieve, to be tempted, to be betrayed. And just as He was about to step into public ministry, guess who came to tempt Him? But the enemy. And not surprisingly, the enemy called the serpent, he used the same strategy that he used with Eve. He tried to sow doubt. To Eve, he said, did God really say? And to Jesus, he said, if you are the son of God. He said to Jesus, turn these stones into bread and eat. And while Eve took and ate, Jesus resisted the enemy's temptation. Ultimately, though the serpent said, take and eat, offering that which he wasn't permitted to give, Jesus would one day say, take and eat, 
offering his life for the forgiveness of sins, offering a place at the table of salvation. Jesus made that journey to the cross, giving his life for our shame and our blame. He died on a tree, not of the knowledge of good and evil, but of one that gives us life. And I wonder if you're in need of that life today, a life that leads to flourishing, a life where you're no longer in hiding, a life where you can walk in freedom in the identity that God has made you in His image. Because your identity is in the name He's given you, a new creation, the righteousness of God, a friend of God, a masterpiece, redeemed, loved, set free. I told you earlier about the watch I helped my dad choose for my mom. A few years ago, my mom gave me the watch. And um, every time I wear it, it's a reminder of the family I belong to, whose image I carry. And the image that you carry is that of God, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the beginning and the end, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, our helper, our strength, the hope of heaven and earth, the creator of the universe. And your identity is as His child. He made you in His image. He loves you. He gave His life for you. And He offers a place at the table for you. And He says, come, give me your blame, give me your shame. Offer your worries and your doubts. Through Jesus, you are part of the family. Begin not with blame and shame, but with the belief that you've belonged all along. And from that place, you can walk freely into your God-given identity. Amen. Let's just take a moment to pray. Uh, wherever you're watching this from, you may want to put out your hands like this. Um, it's just a sign that says, Lord, I'm ready to receive from you. And I'm just going to pray that ancient prayer that we always pray. Come, Holy Spirit. Would you speak to us right now, wherever we are watching this from? As I was writing this sermon, I just had a sense that there might be someone watching this, that you have been putting up barriers between you and God, you and the people around you. And I think today God is saying, I want to remove those barriers from you uh, because you belong to me. And He wants to remind you that He loves you, that you are made in His image. If that's you, uh, we'd love to pray with you. You can request prayer. Um, also, there might be someone here and you really resonated with this sense that you've been betrayed, um, maybe it's something to do with your business. Um, and I think God wants to remind you that He knows what it feels like to be betrayed. Um, there might also be someone here and you just need a reminder on what your identity in Christ is. And um, I think God wants to remind you that you are a son and daughter of, of the Lord. Um, and so if any of those words resonate with you or if you'd like to receive prayer, uh, you can just uh, scan the QR code and one of our team would love to pray with you but let's just finish now with this final song of worship Dirty, dirty, dirty.